0: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is our Thursday deep dive interview where we have on an analyst to discuss a single stock. And today we're talking about Adobe with Leandro. You may know him as Invest Quotes, invest quotes on Twitter. He has been on the show before. We talk about that at the beginning of the intro. Um, so you might recognize him, but, uh, Really good analyst, and Adobe was a lot of fun to talk about since it's kind of a controversial stock right now, uh, but one of the best-performing stocks of all time. Did you have any highlights from the interview?
1: Yeah, I think there's three highlights that came away from maybe just more information I learned about Adobe. One, why they have such a strong competitive advantage. Two, why the Figma deal might make sense and why the regulation outcome or regulatory outcome is kind of a big deal for the company's long-term trajectory, or maybe just long-term, you know, holding on to that competitive advantage. And third, the maybe underrated uh, growth potential of the experience and analytics part of the business, which a lot of people maybe, I don't know, just don't think about very often.
0: All right. Before we get to the interview, we do want to talk about our sponsor, our only sponsor, exclusive Seven Investing. You want to talk about them?
1: Yeah. So, 7investing, as you may have heard before, uh, since we've been talking about them, they do seven stock picks a month. And on top of that, they also do their 20 highest conviction stocks in their strong buy portfolio. So, as of right now, they have over 200 active 7investing recommendations, but that is kind of hard to parse through. So, to look at their, you know, strongest conviction ideas as of this moment, they update each quarter their 20 best ideas. They just released this as a part of the 7investing subscription, and they have released short reports, or not you know not short selling reports, but small reports to go along with each. And along with this portfolio, you can track how it's doing versus the market. Uh, and I think it's a great way to kind of see, okay, you know, we're not just giving out these research reports. We're kind of telling you what stocks we think are very attractive at these moments. Uh, so if you want to use our code MONEY, M-O-N-E-Y, Uh, you get a hundred dollars off your annual subscription and you can take a look at these strong buys right now along with all the other stuff that goes along with uh, a seven investing subscription that is a hundred dollars off your annual subscription or 25 percent off and that is for life with code money the link and the uh code is in the checkout on top of that we'll be having a longer discussion with seven investing founder simon erickson at the end of this interview so after all the stuff with adobe is over if you're more interested in 7investing, you can hear from the man himself, Simon Erickson, who founded the company after the outro music.
0: All right. Without further ado, here's our interview with Leandro. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. Today we are joined by Leandro, now second time guest, I believe. No,
1: third, third, third time. I think so. Yeah, Constellation Software and oh wait, maybe I'm mixing.
2: Leandro would know. Is it yeah. second or third? Uh, I, I'm actually, I actually think it's third time, but I cannot remember what it was besides Constellation Software. I
1: know we had, if anyone's interested in Constellation Software, we had a great episode on them uh, earlier this year. But yeah, I can't remember what the other company was. I will look that up while we're recording, but well continue, Ryan.
0: We'll uh, we'll call it second time for the time being. But uh you, you may know him as at quotes on Twitter. He's also the uh the the writer at Best Anchor Stocks on Seeking Alpha. And today we're talking about Adobe, which has kind of been in some, I guess you could it's kind of been in the hot seat as of late, thanks to sort of a big acquisition, but before we get to that Figma acquisition, let's talk about the company. What sparked your interest into looking into Adobe? Kind of how how did you come across it as an investment?
2: Okay, yeah. Before before answering the the question, I think the other company was ASML, maybe. That That's right. correct. I
1: just looked it up. I yeah. was going to save it for the end, but yes. Anyone interested? Yeah. ASML Constellation <laughs> Software. I think those um, yeah still be relevant today. Go check those out in our archive feed. But yes, continue, Andrew. <laughs>
2: Okay, go, going back to the to the question. Well, I was I was looking for software companies that had some kind of mode that went beyond technological leadership because I, I'm a bit wary of modes that come only from technology. I think a, a tech gap can close pretty fast. So that made me search for companies that had some kind of a technological leadership, but also another mode or competitive advantage that was protecting the the technology leadership. And that made me come against companies like Adobe, Autodesk, that I think, I don't know if you guys, I think you guys know Autodesk or Intuit, uh, which I think enjoyed competitive advantages that go well beyond the technology that underlies the, the products. So in, in my opinion the first trade one has to look at when searching for software companies that with this competitive advantage that go beyond technology is how they have fared in the past because if there's a, a software company that has been able to survive the test of time then that's a pretty good indication that there's something besides the mode so for example Adobe and Intuit the Intuit they have managed to survive for more than 3 decades and their margins are still top class. Their return on capital it's pretty high. So clearly, competition is not having an easy time eating in the returns. So yeah, that that's how actually I came across Adobe. I also studied uh, into it in in depth. And I, I'm actually looking at Autodesk now because I think that if you can combine software with another kind of mode, then that can be very powerful. But if it's just software, then I'm a bit worried about the mode because. I don't know, a 10-year time frame is a lot in technological terms. Okay. Uh, especially especially with all the money that pours into software. Yeah. And just for reference for listeners,
1: Adobe is one of the best performing stocks of all time. I'm looking at the chart now, and I believe it's over a 1,000 beggar. So over 100,000% are around their return since inception. So I, if that's not a good indicator of business quality, I don't know what is. But let's get into what the company actually does, because people know it as you know, the PDF company and kind of the creative cloud company, but they have a ton of different products. So what are the various segments and what are important for each?
2: Okay, so Adobe has three segments, two of which make the majority of revenue. The two most important segments are digital media and digital experience. In digital media, you have the creative cloud and the document cloud, and then digital experience, you have the experience cloud. So. Uh, well, the third segment is publishing and advertising, which is like a bunch of legacy software products that are like making every year a small part, a smaller part of revenue. But I think to understand Adobe, it's better if you look at the clouds and not at the reportable segments. So I'd say it's better if you look at creative, document and experience cloud. So the most important by far is the creative cloud is right now it's the largest. There are a bunch of products included. I think it's, actually like around 31 products or so. So it's quite big. Um, You can find here famous products, uh, Adobe products like Photoshop, Lightroom, or Premiere. Photoshop is obviously photo editing. That that has become a verb. And then you have Premiere, that is video editing. So in in Creative Cloud, you basically find any product that is used by creative users to create and edit digital content in any kind of... In any kind of format, uh, basically, you've got photo editing with Photoshop, video editing with Premiere, and then you also have 3D editing with a company that Adobe bought not long ago called Substance. I think so I think we've a- got
0: our uh, audio editing software is included in there as well. And um, and, so.
2: and we'll
1: talk about it. We have the bundle as well. So you know, we like using the digital signature, but I think that might be the the big
2: bundle. But either way, continue. Mm-hmm. So th- this is the Creative Cloud which makes like a substantial part of revenue, it's what Adobe is known for. Then you have the Document Cloud, Adobe is also known for document management because they basically like invented the PDF. Um, so Adobe has for many years been adding what management calls verbs to Acrobat, that is the product that they sell for PDF management. So that users can freely manage and edit documents. So in this segment, you can also find other offerings such as Adobe Sign, which makes like obviously makes total sense that you can buy Adobe Sign in the document cloud. But Adobe is also transitioning to a full document management offering, such as similar to what DocuSign is trying to offer it, to offer. But to be honest, Adobe is not quite there yet. And Adobe Sign is somewhat more commoditized that you can find in a full document management offering. And then finally, you've got the Experience Cloud, which is also made up of many individual products that help customers distribute personalized digital experiences. So in, in the past, customers had the Creative Cloud to create digital, digital content, but Adobe's management felt that they didn't have the end-to-end life cycle of that digital content that was being created because a customer would create something and then they would take it elsewhere to distribute it. So Adobe started to buy a wide variety of companies. The first one was Omniture, that was an analytics company. And they started to build this experience cloud where customers would be able to create digital content using creative cloud products, and then distribute that content using the experience cloud without leaving the Adobe ecosystem.
0: Okay, makes sense. And you, you wanted, uh, when we were talking before the show, you, you made sure we wanted to talk about Experience Cloud. I know you just touched on it, but which of these segments do you think has the most or the, or the largest opportunity? I mean, Creative Cloud, I think, comprises the majority of revenue right now. Do you think Experience Cloud could eventually be sort of a second pillar there?
2: Well, I think Creative Cloud will continue to be the most important segment for many years, especially because now we have a like a large influx of new creators thanks to the creator economy. So now Adobe with the Creative Cloud is not just catering to professional creators; it's a, it also caters to individual creators. I mean, they just rolled out a product called Adobe Express. And I'm actually a user of that product. It's basically the same as Canva. I think people would know Canva and not, maybe not Adobe Express because it's fairly new, but I think the experience cloud offering is a bit undervalued by the market because it's growing slow. Like it makes a, not a big part of Adobe's revenue and it's growing slow. So people are saying like, well, that's not working because at this stage it should be growing very fast, but that's, something like that's a consequence of how the Experience Cloud works. So Adobe caters to very large enterprises with this offering. And these enterprises, like they they cannot just say, "Okay, I want that software like I'll buy it. They have to basically transform the tech infrastructure so they can um, like install these products in house. So, for example, if you're a company that has a website and you want to know all the analytics, and you want to buy the Experience Cloud, it's not as simple as saying, okay, I'll buy uh, Adobe Analytics and then I'll be able to see everything. No, you have like to tag your whole website so all the data goes to Adobe and that takes like a lot of time and a lot of money. So we're talking, I've, I've worked in a project where we used uh, Adobe Analytics and to implement just this product, it maybe takes one or two years and maybe double digit, like 10 million of a project to do so. So it's not something that the enterprise customers can switch to very fast. So that's why I think we're seeing very slow growth, right? Like it's not slow growth, still double digit, but I would expect expect better in the future. And that's because many customers are starting with analytics and then when they have everything, like everything is focus on that analytics product and all the tech infrastructure has been adapted. Then they start purchasing rest of the products. And we are not there yet. Like many companies have one product, but they still don't have the remaining remaining 10 or 12 products. So I think it's actually a segment that we will see accelerate in the future.
0: Okay, let's talk about pricing then. How does Adobe price its products? I, I, I imagine a lot of the value um, or a lot of the competitive advantage is that, you know, there's there's competing products for a lot of Adobe's offerings, but there's maybe not uh as anywhere near as there, good as not bundle.
1: one? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um so can customers bundle or and do they have to bundle or could they just buy, you know, a, a singular product?
2: Yeah, so pricing differs slightly across the different segments. So in Creative Cloud, someone could buy the entire Creative Cloud. And for around, I think it's $60 a month. And they would have basically access to the plus 30 products that Adobe has. Or you can also buy products individually. Like if you just want Photoshop, you can buy Photoshop. I think it's $20 a month. You can can bundle like there's sort of a personalized bundle, but you cannot decide it. Like I cannot choose to buy Photoshop and Premiere. So Adobe will tell you, okay, do you want the photo editing offering? Then you can buy Photoshop, Photoshop and Lightroom for $40 a month or something like that. But as you can see, like if you're going to buy Photoshop and Lightroom for, $20, for $40 a month, and the whole Creative Cloud is $60 a month, what Adobe is trying to do is to make everyone buy the Creative Cloud bundle. And even if you go to Document Cloud, that is somewhat similar. You can buy Acrobat Pro uh, for, I don't know, I don't remember the price right now, but you can buy Acrobat Pro or Acrobat Standard that is cheaper. But actually, if you buy the Creative Cloud, it comes with Acrobat Pro. So everything in the digital media segment leads you to buy the Creative Cloud subscription because it's like the price point is it's not worth it to buy the products individually. So when you have more than two products, then the Creative Cloud is going to be worth it. So, and then in the, in the digital experience segment, is, it's much more like opaque because it caters to enterprises. So it's not like an individual can go on the Adobe's website and say, hey, I want the, the experience cloud, how much is it? So that's, I think that would be set on a case per case basis and, but those contracts, if you're a very large company, you'll, you'll go into the um, more than 10 million a year to have the whole experience cloud.
0: This episode is brought to you by ourselves. If you're hearing this now, we know you're a Chit Chat Money listener, but if you want to get more than just our free episodes, you can become a Chit Chat Money Plus subscriber. Within the subscription, members get access to our weekly Not So Deep Dive episodes, our monthly episodes detailing one of the holdings in our investment fund, Arch Capital, and then they also get written work, so newsletters and research files to go along with each Not So Deep Dive episode. Am I missing anything?
1: We should talk about the themes that we do each month so each month we choose a theme based on whatever we want so last month we did video games this month we're doing housing next month we're doing engineering software i believe and then the following month we're doing website and e-commerce software we choose those because it's you know a great way to investigate a different industry and if you want to subscribe to ccm plus go directly through Apple podcasts or Spotify or through the link that will be in each one of our show notes. It is only $5 a month. You heard that right. $5 a month. Perfect to try out. If you like what we have to offer, we hope you'll subscribe. Okay. Now we may have be hitting this a little bit late because we're kind of talking a bit of the history here, but let's talk the industry dynamics. I mean, revenue growth has been generally consistent over the last few decades. Um, which is just highly impressive. I mean, we talked about how good their stock returns have been. Is, I mean, what are you looking at for whether this can continue over the next decade? Because I think that's kind of the the big question. How mature is this, you know, the creative cloud market, Mm -hmm. the digital experience market, all that good stuff?
2: Well, revenue was actually kind of lumpy before 2012 uh, because the company was actually a product-based company and not a subscription-based company. So what happened is that in the year 2008, in the global financial crisis, Adobe's revenue actually dropped significantly. And Shantanu Unarayan, the current CEO, has just been named CEO in 2007, and he didn't like at all what he saw because it was not a predictable business. So they started the because, well, what happens when you have a product-based company? revenue model is that when you go into a recession, then customers are going to defer the purchases because Photoshop version one might be okay to do their work. And maybe you just released Photoshop version 1.1, but they don't want it. So they started, Adobe started to transition to a more predictable model and transitioning to uh, subscription to software as a service. So software as a service brought, brought more predictability and higher growth, actually, because now, before you had to pay, I don't know if you wanted Photoshop, you had you had to pay one thousand or two thousand dollars, and it was like one-time payment. You got the software, and then you installed it. And now you can pay twenty dollars, and you have the software. So maybe over the life that you're using that uh, that product, Adobe is making more or less the same money, but for the cost, like customer point of view, it's much more like it's cheaper. But it's not it's not cheaper, but it's it's easier to buy so to say so the the thing is that adobe has seen strong growth but it hasn't growth it, it hasn't grown too much on price so it has more is it has grown more on volume and and this despite having what can be considered a monopoly in creative so th- this is great because now adobe has like a huge install base and they can actually take quite a bit of price i mean if you are um as I don't know, a creator and you're making um, 3000 a month or you're a creative agency and you're making a lot of money from these products, $60 a month is a very tiny part of your total cost. And these are mission-critical products. So they can actually take uh, quite a bit of, of price increases. But I think that this this is what has happened in the um, the last decade. And I think the next decade will be different because... During the last decade, Adobe was growing mainly with creative professionals. So there was, there was obviously more content being created online. So the creative industry was, was booming. Now it's different because the boom is coming from non professionals due to the creator economy. So everyone is creating digital content to, for the online economy. Like you've got influencers or you've got actually like myself that I'm working every, all the work I do, your work also is digital content. So. you're going to have to go for a different type of customer. And I think it's going to be a bit more difficult. So Adobe is coming out with products such as Adobe Express because Canva is now so famous in the non-professional community that you have to fight like, you are not the incumbent anymore. You have to be sort of the disruptor in this this segment. So it's a good opportunity because you can grow a lot on subscribers. But at the same time, I believe that monetizing this user base is going to be much tougher. Like I've used before Adobe Express I've used Canva for quite a while, and I've never even thought about paying. So I think it's going to be quite difficult to monetize these, these users, but it's, it's still a, an opportunity. And the thing that I'm mo- most bullish about is the Experience Cloud, because we are in the very early innings of that offering. So I remember listening to a podcast with Robert Smith, that is the founder of Vista Equity Partners, where he said that the next inning in software is analytics. So before we have all the coding and everything was getting super efficient. And now you actually have to measure what comes out of that and act on that to keep improving. And Adobe has positioned itself like perfectly for that with the Experience Cloud. There's only like one large competitor, which is Salesforce. And Salesforce is two or three years behind in the Experience Cloud offering. And they are also missing their Creative Creative Cloud offering, which doesn't allow them to do an end-to-end um, offering. So I think... I would say that Creative Cloud has growth drivers for the future. It will definitely be tougher, but I think Experience Cloud, besides having growth, is going to like allow Adobe to build another mode besides Creative, where, where, where the historical mode has been.
0: Okay, you mentioned that when you're looking at software businesses, you don't just want the best in-class provider technology-wise. You want some sort of other competitive advantage. For Adobe, what do you think those big advantages are?
2: Okay, I think once again, like like in every business that has several segments, it it varies a bit per, per segment, but looking at the grand scheme of things, I definitely say that the combination of creative and experienced cloud will be an important competitive advantage going forward. Like enterprise customers don't like complexity. Complexity is basically killing large businesses so i understand that in the future most of them would prefer to have a one ecosystem where they can they can create the digital content and also distribute it and measure it and then act on that like the other you could also have adobe creative cloud and then distribute that content in on salesforce for example that but i don't think that's going to be like really a thing for very large customers because they are basically going to offer something very similar and then you, you're not, I don't think Adobe is going to make it easy so that you can distribute their content with other platforms. So then more more specifically, if we look at the different segments, if we look at creative, I'd see the, the competitive advantage, uh, advantage lies in adoption. Like in, uh, it's a fairly similar dynamic to Autodesk. So Adobe's products became the standard in the creative industry. So students were somewhat forced to learn how to use them because they knew that the creative agencies would demand them. Like if you were going out of university and you wanted to be a creative professional and you wanted to get a job, they were going to ask for Photoshop. Like that was going to happen. So, and actually universities had the Creative Cloud for free. So they were teaching you how to use the Creative Cloud at at school. So I think that's very similar to what Autodesk did since the beginning. management is very well very well aware of this so they keep targeting in, uh, educational institutions so that they keep um working with the creative cloud then on document cloud i actually i still don't see any strong competitive competitive advantages so i would say that if they offer a full document management offering like docuSign is trying to do then that could cement strong competitive advantages, but I don't see just how like, maybe they have a sort of a competitive advantage in the partnership with Microsoft because Acrobat comes installed with Windows. So that's that gives Adobe, I think a couple of billion uh, users, which is like very, it's a significant opportunity, but I don't see how it differentiates against other offerings. And then on the Experience Cloud, I think that the mode is still being built but I expect it to be quite strong because the closest competitor, as I said, is Salesforce. Is Salesforce, but it's still behind Adobe, and this ha- this is going to have pretty big implications for the future. Because if Adobe wins a large enterprise customer with the Experience Cloud, the switching costs are so so high that Salesforce is going to have like a lot of trouble going for those customers. Like if I'm spending two years. Um, implementing the Adobe Experience Cloud, and it's working just fine. I'm not going to spend another two years to switch to Salesforce. In fact, one of I have a friend that worked for Accenture, and he he worked in implementing the Adobe Experience Cloud because actually Accenture is um, like a partner with Adobe, so they sell the Experience Cloud, and then they they also sell the project to implement it, and uh, Accenture does that. And he told me that, in four or five years, he's never th- he's never seen any customers switching from Adobe Experience Cloud. It's just so hard to switch. And if something goes wrong, you're basically losing all the data because with the Adobe Experience Cloud, you're able to personalize like to build a real-time uh, customer's uh, profile. So if you switch out of the Experience Cloud, then you have to start from scratch, and companies don't like that. So I think, there's no mode there yet because it's still very early innings. But if Adobe still keep like stays two or three years ahead of Salesforce, I think it's going to be a very strong mode of switching costs.
1: Yeah, I mean that sounds like phenomenal switching costs. Let's talk about what I think a lot of listeners have maybe heard about recently, and that is the Figma deal. Um, first off. I guess let's just go over it generally. Were you surprised by it? Overall thoughts of the acquisition? Um, how could it work? How could it fail? All that good stuff. I, and Ryan, yeah.
0: And beyond just overall thoughts, what is Figma?
2: I think a lot, right, of, people, right. yeah. a lot
0: of people don't know what Figma is.
2: Yeah. Okay. So Figma is a, a company that was actually only competing with one of Adobe's products that is Adobe XD That it's to create um, user interface and user experience designs. But What Figma had different to Adobe was that their platform was real time and collaborative. So you actually, it was on the web. So different creators could be in the same uh, document working at the same time. And even non-designers could be looking at, at the work and putting comments on it. And Adobe didn't have that. So even though it didn't, like it's not a major competitor for the creative cloud it's just with just with one product but this strategy like adobe knew that the the design like the creative industry is going towards collaborative and also towards including non-designers in the workflow and adobe didn't have this Uh, they were actually trying to pivot to this with things such as Um, photoshop on the web and also adobe express which is also on the web but it's what it was like being very slow so i think that's why they ended up like bidding for figma i was i must say i was actually surprised because i had underestimated a bit like the threat that figma was to adobe actually it was it was quite funny because if you went into figma's website you could see how they mentioned adobe like saying okay if you want to do um, if you want to design UX, then do it here. But if you want to edit a photo, go to Adobe. So they were like actually admitting that they didn't have a, a 360 degree solution for creatives. But at the same time, they were saying in this product, like to design this, we are much, much better. Right. So I think that was the, um, the main like point why management Adobe's management went to to acquire Um, Figma, I think it's obviously expensive. Uh, I think 50 times annual recurring revenue is expensive however you look at it, especially in this market. Like, I mean, if you purchase, if Adobe would have purchased Figma for half stock with a $700 stock, then one could say, okay, yeah, they're buying Figma and it's expensive, but they are paying also with uh, an expensive stock. But they were actually doing doing it when they were close to fifty-two week uh, lows, so that that was that wasn't great. But I must say, even though this is anecdotal, like since Adobe announced the um, the deal, the stock has come down like thirty percent or something like that. So actually, the acquisition now is three billion less because it's fixed shares. So, dilution is not going to be like if Adobe manages to now repurchase the stocks that they are going to issue, then it's going to be a bit better than the 20 billion. So, I think that I don't think the Figma deal can be looked at from a purely ROI perspective. So, if an investor measures the Figma deal based on ROI, well, they are going to be disappointed because even if Figma grows very fast, I doubt Adobe will see any meaningful return in the coming years. However, what the Figma deal like has bought Adobe, I think it's more time to compound capital above its cost of capital. Like they basically bought a monopoly for five to 10 years more. And I think that's something that you're never going to be able to take into account in the return equation, so to say. So imagine that by buying Figma, the creative cloud is able to grow faster or maybe it doesn't deteriorate and it keeps like steady growth, then you're not going to take that like into the numerator of the Figma deal, but that's actually a benefit that that Adobe is seeing. And they are not going to disclose how much of the creative cloud growth in other products like Photoshop is coming from buying Figma. So it's going to be basically impossible to know what the return on this thing. So I think that's something to take into account. I think as an asset Figma is great but probably not worth 20 billion. And when I say probably, I mean like it's not worth 20 billion. It's just if you, take the, if you take the asset by itself. But if you, if, if you take the asset and what it means to Adobe and how it's going to impact the different areas, then I think that it, it, it might be worth it. And I think something I read the other day that's also important in an expert call is that Adobe might have been bidding for Figma with a close competitor and they mentioned Salesforce. So Salesforce, we mentioned before that they only have the experience cloud and they are missing their like sort of a creative cloud. So they were maybe trying to go for Figma to complete that offering. And obviously Adobe could never let that like an asset such as Figma end up in, in Salesforce. So I think that might have like played that and also that Figma didn't want to sell. Those two things also made the like the price come up. So I think I think it's, it has to be looked at from a strategic point of view more than a from a financial perspective, which obviously from a financial perspective, it will never make sense.
0: Okay, so a couple of follow-ups. You mentioned, I, I, I guess you mentioned that it isn't worth 20 billion on its own, but it potentially adds more, it's almost more valuable as a part of Adobe. Is there any sort of, do you think this like, how does adobe benefit beyond or or how does figma benefit being a part of adobe is there any benefit to them
2: yeah like figma now has basically access to a global sales force and before they didn't have it so now an adobe has a huge install base in creative and actually what adobe sells in many cases is complementary to the to what they to what figma sells so imagine that adobe gets adobe xd i don't know if they're going to do it do this but they discontinue adobe xd and they offer figma in the creative cloud then figma is going to be have a huge install base because a lot of people are going to buy the creative cloud or or they already have it and but i think the obviously the the benefits are going to be like greater on the other side like how adobe benefits because figma also i think one of the most important things is that figma brings a lot of non-designers to Adobe. Like Adobe, you basically had designers using the Creative Cloud, but two thirds of Figma's users were non-designers. So for example, the project manager that is overseeing the business team, the developer team and the design team, he was also a Figma user because he was collaborating with the designers in real time. So now Adobe is going to have like Adobe's target customer just grew a lot because now they're going to be able to put all these non-designers into the mix. And if Adobe is able to pivot all the all their offerings to like imagine the creative cloud in the future is on the web and real-time collaborative, then that's going to be a huge boost to, to sales and also on the pricing side because now, now you're going to be able to raise prices much, much faster. Like Figma had a free, what's a freemium offering um, so now that you know have that thread, then if you raise prices, where are going well, where are Adobe XE users going to go to Figma? Well, Figma is yours, so you can raise the price there. Figma has says that they are not said that they are not going to raise the price, but I want to see if that stands true like two years from now.
3: Right.
1: Right. And one more follow up on the Figma deal on real time collaboration. If Adobe, say, I don't know, five, 10 years from now is you can see kind of how the whole user base is going to real-time collaboration. Do you think that widens the moat uh, just because of a you know, higher switching costs, better maybe even network effect? you could describe it as with everyone on there? Does that help compared to how everything's kind of isolated with some of the products today? I
2: think it actually deteriorates the mode a bit. Okay. Like if everything, if everything goes to on the web, then switching costs are going to be... And and I think the the most important thing is that the industry is pivoting towards AI. And so like simplifying the life of the designers, like you're going to, I don't know what, maybe before to 20 or 30 clicks to do on Photoshop. Now with AI, it might take two clicks. Um, Making the products easier. And if you guys hold Autodesk, you might know, it's not great for the mode (laughs) because then... um, If you don't have like a learning curve, then you can switch much easier than if you have a learning curve, like you've been using Photoshop for five years and you know how to use it perfectly. But if someone can learn to use Photoshop like in one month, then the switching costs are much lower. So I think Adobe 100% had to jump into the collaborative and real time trend, but The AI trend is going to be a bit, I think it's going to be a a bit difficult to tackle because the mode will shift from a learning curve or high switching costs. It will shift a bit to technological leadership, which is what we talked about before, that it's like you might be very good at AI, but another company can come and get up to date much faster than if someone has to learn uh, Photoshop for five years. Okay. okay,
0: last question on Figma, um, and I know we've we've kind of harped on it a lot. But my when I looked at Adobe before the Figma deal, I thought, wow, this is a business with a, an incredible moat. And then when I see the company have to pay twenty billion dollars to essentially fend off a competitor, it makes me question that moat. Does does that concern you at all? And what's the risk that they end up having to do this again down the road?
2: Well, it's not the first time Adobe does this, but um, maybe at this scale, obviously it's, uh, it's the first time. I think management was clearly complacent. Like they, they allowed Figma to grow too fast and to, to a very big size. Like they could have acquired Figma in 2021, maybe like even making a large offer, but paying less um i think it shows that the mode maybe is not as strong but at the same time if this deal goes goes through it also tells investors like hey look we we might like we overpaid for this but we are protecting our mode for many years to come and if we can continue doing this and maybe the price the 20 billion in 10 years makes sense then i see it as a just another acquisition like many companies there are a lot of companies that have strong modes that acquire smaller competitors and they'd say no it's a tracking acquisition to um, uh, complement my offerings but in many of those cases they are also acquiring companies because there are threats like visa mastercard like when they see a threat they will actually go go for it maybe they're they'll get blocked or maybe they'll they will not buy it but they will collaborate so i think it's something similar so one could argue that Visa and MasterCard by doing this are showing that their mode is not as strong. Because if not, you can just say, like, I don't worry about competitors, they are not going to eat my lunch. But then blockchain comes in and they start to collaborate with blockchain to see how it works and to see how they can adapt to it. So I think if you are able to do it, then I don't see it as a concern. But if you're Facebook, then yeah, it's a concern because you're not going to be able to acquire even like a 20 employee company. So but in this case, if I would say that if it doesn't go through, it's a huge concern. Like if the acquisition doesn't go through the regulator, um, then I would most probably be like my conviction would be lowered a lot because Adobe is saying, "Hey, look, we have a, a threat and we're not we are not able to eliminate it." But as long as Adobe says, "Hey, look, we have a," A competitor and we just eliminated the the threat for the next five ten years and now we're going to accelerate our our revenue then for me that's somewhat fine right okay
1: now we met you mentioned management a bit there but any other thoughts on management anything you think is important uh do you think you know the ceo who i think has been there since 2008 as you mentioned uh is very important to the story
2: yeah i think i like management to be honest now they they're getting, like, not very nice comments by the investor community, and I can understand why. So Shantanu has been at Adobe for a long time, and he guided the company through the global financial crisis. He led the transition to software as a service. So I believe he's a visionary, too, because he bought Omniture, the what's now Adobe Analytics, uh, when basically no large company was going for that market and you had a lot of small players. And now he's built the whole experience cloud, which is positioned like for strong growth for many years to come. So I think I think organic investments have been really good. If we go into capital allocation, yeah, it, it hasn't been great. <laughs> like um, they have bought a lot of stock and they don't do repurchases like they should be done. But I feel that there's not many software companies that actually do repurchases as they should be done because they they use the excuse that they are buying back stock to offset dilution from the stock-based compensation. Like that's, you can read that in every 10K of any software company. And well, I think if I see people doing two things that I don't think should be done together, they adjust free cash flow for stock based compensation but then they complain when that cash that they subtracted from free cash flow is being used to buy back stock i think you shouldn't do the two because if you are already ad- adjusting the free cash flow metric for the stock based compensation you're basically saying okay i assume that the, even if the company is issuing stock they're paying it with cash so then you should be fine if they spend that cash and buy back the stock regardless of price and and at, like if they can Offset the dilution. So if you look at Adobe's free cash flow margin, it's super high. But if and then if you if you uh, take into account stock based compensation, then it's fair. It's not like super high, not like in the forty percent, but it's twenty percent, something like that. So I think that's something that should be taken into account. And I think the the company has made some good acquisitions, others not so good. But it comes back to what I. To what i told you before like it's impossible to measure how good the acquisitions are when you are bundling them in in some of the clouds like i bought they bought omniture and then they bought also a company called magento that it's for um a small and medium-sized business e-commerce like it competes with the likes of shopify and stuff and that's in the experience cloud so how can you measure how much is like magento doing like maybe you have a company that just came to the experience cloud because my like because you had that product and then they are buying a lot of different products and you're not taking that into account in the like return for for that company but it should be there
0: makes sense all right let's talk about i guess the we've hit on the business a lot so let's talk about the stock the stock is down i guess 50% from a year ago so and this is kind of regarded as a really high quality business. Um, what's the valuation look like? How do you think about the valuation today? I know the Figma deal kind of complicates things, but I guess just generally, what are your thoughts on valuation?
2: Well, I think it was definitely overvalued last year. <laughs> and now like you have to add to the fact that it was overvalued and like you have rising interest rates, which that's not something like that's not company specific it has come down substantially i think there are a lot of fears of adobe being cyclical um, but i think it's somewhat similar to digital ads like there's no there's no way of knowing if it's actually cyclical because you know how like another example another example in 2008 adobe obviously suffered but it was product-based business now that is um like a subscription business then how is it going to react? And a lot of these people depend on these products to continue like uh, earning like their their revenue. So I think that also puts downward pressure on the stock. I think um, the digital experience, like experience cloud is not going to be very, very cyclical, to be honest, but creative cloud could be cyclical. Uh, That's still like, we still have to see. And I think that The valuation for me seems fair now, but I see a lot of people comparing Adobe's multiples to what they were 10 years ago, or maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago, just to see where the average lies. And I don't think that makes sense for any company, but for uh, for Adobe, even less so. So Adobe 10 years ago was beginning the transition to to software as a service. And so how can you, they, they didn't even have like a strong Experience Cloud. They were just starting the to build it up. So you're basically comparing two different companies. So it doesn't make sense to do to do that. Um, I think, to me, if, if I'm honest right now, that I'm building the, I'm still building building my position. Uh, I don't care if there's more downside ahead, <laughs> and there could be, but, and I am not any good at uh, uh, TA, but. The stock seems to be holding up quite well lately in the general scheme of the market. Obviously, it, it has come down a lot. Uh, 30% drop after the Figma news. And I think the, the most crucial person, I don't think you can look at this from a valuation perspective and still you don't know if the Figma deal closes or not. Like if, if the Figma deal closes, I think it's fairly valued. But if the Figma deal does not close, I would say that Adobe has lost an opportunity to continue like protecting its monopoly. And that will be definitely reflected in the multiple.
1: All right. Last question here. We talked a bit about the downside risk, so we don't need to hit anything we've already discussed, but anything we missed on what could make, I don't know, any risk to Adobe's business over the next year? Is Canva a big risk? I know you said that's only a small part. So maybe is that overrated, Uh, but any other risks out there?
2: Um, Actually, I think I saw, I also saw Canva like a a significant risk, but after the, the, if the Figma deal goes through, for me, the risk is a bit reduced because Mm -hmm. Adobe can invest a lot more like in sales to sell Adobe Express. And now they would have like a product that is collaborative and on the web, which is what uh, Canva has. So for me, that's somewhat reduced. I'd say there's a side effect from the acquisition and it is that billions are going to be poured into the creative industry after seeing what Adobe can pay for a company such as Figma. So and what, it, capital, and what it did
1: for the VC returns. Uh, so, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. They have now a, a lot of, a lot of money and they'll probably going to reinvest it in creative offering because it's probably, probably the best trade they've, they've done in their, in their lives. So, I think that will surely bring in the future uh, a lot more competition. And Adobe's management is going to be like, it needs to be more aware of what's coming and identify these threats earlier so that not only so that it's cheaper, but also so that it's not seen as a threat for regulators. Like, look what happened with uh, Facebook and Instagram. At the time, everyone was like, oh, yeah, like they don't even like have revenue do you pay what you want and buy it and now the regulators are like oh maybe we shouldn't have like approved that uh, Instagram acquisition <laughs> so i think like if you pay 20 billion for a company regulators are surely going to say well 20 billion is a lot but if you start purchasing companies that may seem like a threat even if the company will was not going to become a big competitor but if you have to pay i don't know 500 million just do it the, the regulator is going to allow you to do it and take that off the market and that's it. So I think that's going to be a risk in the future, like the future, the the risk of a future Figma. And that's going to come. Maybe not, not for the next couple of years because Figma actually grew very fast in the last year. But Figma is actually a 10-year-old company. So it's not like they started and in two years they ate a, a Adobe's lunch. Like they took a decade to do so. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. I think that covers Adobe pretty well. For anyone that wants to keep up with you, why don't you remind remind listeners where the best place to do that is?
2: I'd say uh, Twitter uh, at InvestQuotes or Seeking Alpha at Best anchor Stocks.
0: And so, those graphics you make on Twitter those are uh, those are using an Adobe product.
2: Actually, they are not. Um, because they are using um, an app for the iPad that allows me uh, to draw it with with a pencil, like with okay. the with the Apple pencil. But I have I have done quite a bit of the graphics. For example, what you saw in in the Texas Instruments write up, those graphics were made with with Adobe. Okay.
0: All right. Well, that is going to do it. We want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Simon, we wanted to ask you a few questions about Seven Investing so listeners could get an idea of what they're getting. What inspired you to start the company and what exactly is Seven Investing?
3: Well, hey, Ryan, thanks again for having me. You know, we from years of working in the investing industry was inspired by conversations with people that would just always have kind of the same negative perception of the stock market, right? It's it's too hard or I don't have time for this or this is stacked against me. And those conversations kind of led me to say, hey, we need to create a site that actually does inspire people to say you can take control of your financial future. You can invest in stocks. You can find good stocks to buy and hold for long periods of time. And at the end of the day, too, we know that everybody is different. Um we don't believe that there is one stock that it's for everyone, right? Maybe you're a uh, dividend-loving, you know, paycheck-cashing uh, income investor that might want an option that's going to be a lower-risk dividend-paying stock, especially right now with the economy being what it is. Uh, and then, then other people might say, "Hey, you know, I'm ready to hold on for twenty or thirty years. I want to take some swings for the fences. Let's go after those high-growth opportunities." And so I, I said, "You know, this would be something that would be even more fun rather than just doing it an educational and as and by myself." I said, what if I brought together a team of seven advisors, all with a diverse background and a diverse perspective of the stock market, so we could uncover more stones and look at uh, a bunch of different stocks with a bunch of different investing styles and a whole bunch of different industries. And so seven investing is, is kind of the uh, the genesis of all of those that we started in uh, in March of 2020. And we said, let's look at a whole bunch of different stocks. Let's do the legwork of the analysis, and let's present our seven favorite actionable ideas every month for investors to choose from. And let's start the conversation about which of these stocks is right for you and which one might be the right fit for your portfolio, knowing that investing is a very personal thing.
1: All right. If you are a subscriber of Seven Investing, what do you get? Can you give an overview of what subscribers get?
3: On the very first of every month, Brett, we release our seven new recommendations. So we are... uh Coming up on October 1st here, at least in the recording of this, and you know, on October 1st, we'll release seven recommendation reports. Some of them will be low risk. Some of them will be high risk. Some of them will be biotech. Some of them will be financial services. We run the full gamut. And as a member, you get immediate access to all of the new reports. But you also get access to all of our old recommendations as well. We track all of them in real time on our scorecard at seveninvestingcom investingcom recommendations. And we also provide company updates uh, on all of those previous recommendations as well. We check in on how things are going. And sometimes we even see red flags that we think people should be aware of. There's risks for any opportunity at the time that you recommend it. And sometimes it's really willing. It's really, it's really needed for investors to kind of understand the risk and reward relationship. And then the last part of it is in addition to issuing new recommendations and providing updates on them, as we know that this is a long term journey. We know that investing is something that we wanna take uh, years, if not decades, to accomplish whatever we wanna get to as as the end goal. And so we always, every month, make it a point to be very available for our subscribers to ask us questions. We have a members only call uh, right in the middle of every single month. We have a community discussion forum that that we have available 24 seven to not only talk to our advisors, but also other investors. I think that's one of the key differentiators for seven investing is that, you know, we know this is a long-term journey. We know it's a very personal thing. We know, they're going to have questions along the way. We don't want to just broadcast stock picks and disappear. We want to be here with you uh, throughout this entire journey.
0: And you mentioned, so seven recommendations each month, sometimes those might be repeats, but obviously there's a lot of companies now in the seven investing universe. So how do members get a grasp on, uh, the, the advisors conviction around certain ideas, like which ones do, do they are, do they have a way of knowing which, uh, whether advisors like certain ones more.
3: That's the most common question we've gotten actually, since we started is what's your favorite ideas right now? You know, we've done the diligence on almost 200 unique companies now and put them on the scorecard and people would say, Hey, this is too much to keep up with. How do I even know where to start? And so we've kind of uh, evolved as as a company. One thing that we've started doing is best buys every month. Each advisor gets to pick any of their or another advisor's previous recommendations and put the flag on it that says, this is my best buy for October. And we publish those for subscribers. The other thing that we've started doing is issuing conviction ratings on companies that are also right there on the scorecard. So if you see a previous recommendation, we go everything from potential sell which is the most negative flag we can put on a stock, to strong buy, which is the most positive bullish flag that we can mark things with. And you can filter through all of those to really quickly see, here's some of our favorite opportunities. And we've taken this even one step further now, Ryan, which is we've created a strong buy portfolio where every quarter now we've gone ahead and self-selected as a team through a pretty methodical process, our 20 favorite ideas, our 20 highest scoring companies, That we've collectively come up with our favorites of the entire scorecard and we put these into what we're calling a strong buy portfolio that we publish each quarter also available as an added benefit for no extra charge for seven investing members
1: all right last question here what does it cost to become a seven investing subscriber uh and as a you know we'll talk about or we have talked about before if you're a listener use code money to get a hundred dollars off your annual
3: subscription that's right yeah we do have a monthly option you know you can come in and check out the entire scorecard for a month just to see what you're looking at for 49 dollars a month Uh, but our most popular plan is actually the annual option because it's at a discount to that Uh, in fact we've got a discount on the discount like you mentioned brett uh 3.99 for the year is our is our annual option price but if you use money the chit chat money promo code it's down to 300. so you're basically getting the the subscription for half price if you sign up for the annual offer with that promo code That does not expire after the first year. As long as you remain an active subscriber, you get to lock in that $100 off a year benefit.
0: All right. Well, as he mentioned,
2: use that code MONEY. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks very much for having me.